You're listening to a Morley Radio production. Welcome everyone to Artcast Season 2. First of all, I'd like to say a massive thanks to the lovely team at Morley Radio for assisting in putting together Series 1. With the amazing editing and production skills, friendly and enthusiastic demeanour, and despite the many challenges that lockdown brought, made it a great success. So a huge thanks goes out to Camillo Salazar and Paul Skinner. You can listen to the previous seven episodes on the Morley Radio website, which includes artist support pledge founder Matthew Burrows, Goldie, and Morley Chelsea alumni Susan Collis. Artcast is a podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine arts at the Chelsea Centre at Morley College. Uh, the decision to do this was originally because of the pandemic and the fact that students are spending too much time on their screens and it was to disseminate information more through audio means and to take a break from the screen, perhaps on a walk. Because of last season beginning in the January lockdown and then in the months that followed, there was still some form of restrictions I was unable to invite students to the sessions because of social distancing restrictions. However, for season two, I'll be inviting students along to the episodes to join the discussion. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Shay Durant, who is studying with us under the UAL Extended Diploma in Fashion. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Good to have you here. So season two is shaping up to be a great one with the guests coming in thick and fast. So please stay tuned. And for this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Andy Holden. So Andy Holden's a mixed media artist working with video, ceramics, printmaking, painting, animation, and most notably installations encompassing all of the above. He came to national attention with his exhibition Art Now Andy Holden in 2010 at the Tate Britain for which he exhibited Pyramid Piece, an enormous knitted boulder based on a piece of pyramid which he stole from the Great Pyramid of Giza as a boy and then later returned. Andy has been asked to curate Somerset House's forthcoming exhibition, Bino, The Art of Breaking the Rules, which will open on the 21st of October and be on till the 6th of March 22. He also fronts a band called The Grubby Mitts and he set up his MIMS group and manifesto MIMS standing for Maximum Irony, Maximum Sincerity. This was published as a newspaper and distributed to 90,000 homes and included a social sculpture in the form of a mini golf course in Bedfordshire. Also currently showing, although due to end soon, at Bold Tendencies, a piece called In Praise of Folly. It's a cartoon boulder installed on top of Peckham Library, which is viewable from below and also from the skyline using a telescope on top of the car park at Bold tendencies. Andy, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. Thank Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I kick off all the episodes with the same sort of icebreaker questions. So what, what's your favorite color? All right. It was a kind of duck egg blue, mm. but I had this is like one memory that came to me quite recently that being in like primary school and they asked this question. I mean, not to say that this isn't how the, how the rest of the uh, make similarities between your radio show and primary school, but it was, uh, I remember, and I remember giving my answer, which my standard stock answer when you're like five or whatever of green. And some kids like next to me said luminous yellow. And I remember being really impressed, like that they'd had a sort of like a slight twist on the red, on the, and I remember always thinking I should have a more interesting answer, but I still haven't come up with one. I still, I'm still on like the green blue spectrum, I think. Yeah. Okay. So what about cats, dogs, or both? Wait, that's your next question. Cats, yeah. dogs, or both? That's the option. Uh, yeah, which, 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 if you've got a particular favourite. I'm allergic to cats. Same. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a very thorough collection of ceramic cats. You know, I've got about 300 ceramic cats, so um, which I inherited from my grandma, who also never had a cat. But for some reason, I say some reason, I managed to spring out the question of what that reason might be for a half an hour performance that I've been doing for the last few years where I unbox my grandma's ceramic cat collection <laughs> and discuss why she has ceramic cats rather than ever having just got a cat. And But I now have the same problem because I inherited her cat collection and uh, I'll be showing that for the, actually, the answer, my thorough answer to that question will be um, in the form of my British Art Show presentation, which is going to be a video of me unboxing those cats and talking again about ceramic cats. So, but although I'm Having been curating the Beano show for the last year, I've been reading a lot of Beano and become very fond of Nasha. So I think my answer would be ceramic cats and cartoon dogs. 
Excellent. Thank you. So going back to 2002, when you burst into the art world with that exhibition at the Tate, uh, where you play with the dialogue of artifacts, reproduction, and most interestingly, this idea of guilt in that you took a part of the pyramids. And yeah, I guess art rarely communicates that concept of guilt or feeling of confessing. I was just going to ask, why was the process of knitting adopted? And did you knit it all yourself? Because it's an incredible amount of work that's gone into that. Yeah, all right. So the first part on guilt, I think, is interesting because that's what got it sort of resonated. I think that question, uh, which wasn't at the heart of the project, but it was around around it. In a way, I always thought about this question of what can you undo? You know, mm. and art would be this kind of emotional experiment. It's like if art, I was trying to think at the time a lot about what could art, what was art, what could its function be? And for some people, it's a formal experiment. For some people, it's a social experiment or a part of a continuation of political project or whatever it might, whatever your reasons. For me, I always thought this kind of allows this kind of emotional experiment to tinker with emotional situations that maybe you wouldn't. And one of them was, I did feel bad about the piece of rock, but only in the way that maybe you do as a kid who's just made a mistake and been told off for it. And ultimately, it's not a huge amount of harm done, but this idea of this categorical imperative, this idea that if everyone did it, would it be okay? No, because if everyone took a piece of rock, you'd have no pyramids. So this this weighed kind of heavy. So there's this personal element to it. It happens quite a lot in my work. You take something very personal and maybe incidental, almost not that interesting of its own, but then it scale and scale it up, but also move it out into a wider version of that same idea. So in that case, it wouldn't be just the personal guilt of the mistake of being a kid and being one, you know, just doing something spontaneous and wanting this thing, but a kind of colonial guilt as well, mm. like a broader guilt of having like uh, that. If you do scale things up, you know, if everybody just does what it is that they want in that moment or takes from wherever they want because they want it, uh, we end up. So I think, so I think it's a kind of dialectic between this sort of very personal thing and actually this quite bigger sense, which is now mm. I think we're now really exploring and at the time wasn't a big part of a cultural dialogue i mean it was always been there with the parthenon and the british museum or whatever but you know it's there's always a dialogue about what should we give back and you know the legacies of empire but obviously right now we're thinking about it quite a lot more i think with the discussions around what statutes should stay and things so so i think this idea the, yeah, the idea of a broader sense like yes individual guilt but also a kind of collective guilt so that's the, sort of the first part and then why but then why knitting is like a good question because that, that's the kind of illogical element of the why it's an artwork, not a political protest or a thesis or yeah. all the other forms that information can take. You know, it's an artwork. So you have to have these leaps sometimes. You have to have these jumps, transforming one thing into another thing, because then something surprising can happen that you can't always control. You mm. know, and for me, that was this scaling up of um, the handmade knitted object. You know, we're used to seeing if someone makes something by hand, it's normally if it's in the hand. And so it has this relationship to the body, the hand and the body is bigger. And it's like, oh, what happens if you flip that? What if you had a handmade object? I mean, and also to tell you the truth, it's like it was a kind of reaction to a lot of the art I was seeing at the time, which was quite manufactured, like quite using fabricators or industrial processes or phoning it in or buying it. You know, you know there was a lot of kind of ready-mades going on. Um, so the idea of making a handmade object to deal with this legacy felt felt right. So, And it also gave me this sense of, Duration. So I had to spend a whole year making this thing pretty much. And it was pretty much all me with one person helping me, a friend called Jill at the time, who was mostly because we needed two people to make the process. You had to someone feeding the wool in and someone else making the stitch. So you kind of, you always yeah. needed four hands really to do it. We made thousands of, not thousands, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred panels. And then we would join the panel. Like when we had them laid out and diagrams everywhere of how it would eventually connect up. So you would like, I'm doing this bit, I'm doing this bit. Doing this yeah. bit. And then eventually you patch it into this big thing so the knitting was kind of a monumental task to do a make a handmade object on that scale and because the work was about monuments and uh significance that felt kind of appropriate so it was a kind of i always described it as a monument to a piece of a monument you know this tiny piece of a monument became monumental for me as a kind of signifier in my early development uh, as a person but then it was this kind of monumental task of reimagining it. So I wanted people to feel like they're encountering something of its own, had its own kind of monumentality, but through a softness and through a, not just through size, but through uh, uh, labor time. It's got this, this sort of cartoonish element to it where, I mean, I saw your work Laws of Motion when it was shown at the Science Gallery, where you really are tackling concepts of absurdity, exaggeration, social media representation as well. And I was just wondering what first brought your interest in cartoons? Where, where, where was that sort of point? Yeah, I mean, I think that starts like as it does for most back in 
childhood and just being fascinated by cartoons in whatever that reason is that they work for you at that time you know the the universal appeal of the cartoon medium is kind of and then but then trying to unpick that i guess the, the project laws of motion you're referring to tries to unpick what is that uh, in a bit more what are those what are those cartoons doing in a bit more depth i mean actually for me they were like a gateway into art they were like a gate they're the gateway drug because they're sort of you know you you makes you want to draw or it makes you want to create your own world or it makes you interested in yeah fantastical things and you start to see material as one you know, material isn't faithfully represented. So something that appears hard can be soft. Something that appears large can also be small. You know, you eat all these kind of, and that's why laws of motion takes the lens of physics in cartoons and the transformation of objects. And so what brought me to them first time, yeah, as a kid, you know, is just, it was probably what brings any kids to cartoons. But then what brought them to me later to, was, yeah, that I thought they could tell us something about art and, uh, but more so that maybe they could tell us something about the world around us at the moment, which was seeming to me more and more like a cartoon. Like lots of things that were happening in the real world felt very cartoonish. Like Donald Trump was basically Elmer Fudd or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were sort of like also the social media space of exaggeration and, ex- and heightened emotion and good and bad and, fast pace everything felt like this fast paced cartoon chase sequence you know if one day one thing meant one thing the next day it would flipped on its head to mean something else and so i thought oh the cartoon would be a good analogy for the the, the like mo- the current moment so let's like look at cartoons again through this lens and try and work out you know how did they become about it what was this boom of the golden age of cartoons in the 20s 30s 40s 50s you know who made who made these what was the recipe that went into them and how can that maybe help us understand a little bit about the moment because cartoons sort of do describe the moment but they do it in a very offbeat and tangential way so it's been a long journey through the cartoon landscape. I started it back pretty much straight after the Tate Show 2010 and took a long time to write the final text. Like five years, I think I was kind of working on that, yeah. writing it back. Just say researching, but a lot of that was just watching cartoons. But yeah, <laughs> watching cartoons and reading papers on physics. And then the show at Block 336 last year, which in, in Brixton, which was called The Structure of Feelings, which sort of was a, a sequel to that piece. And it had quite an excitement around it, notably because it was one of the first shows I went to after lockdown, um, and also because it was so hard to get um, tickets, where you sort of had to keep checking in as if you were booking tickets for Glastonbury or something. And it was interesting as well because it it was because it was sort of set up as this like ghost train sort of theme park ride, whereby you'd sit in. Uh, small little trains that looked like rocks. Um, it aided social distancing, but at the same time, it was very hands-on. It was a very hands-tactile experience, which was something quite unique for that time, whereby you'd sit in a car, it would be sanitized, and then you'd grab the handles and drive yourself around the exhibition. I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about some of the quotes that you used from the poems of William Wordsworth, and there were some Karl Marx quotes juxtaposed with the kind of Flintstone-like animation, and then, and then Freud's interpretation of dreams uh, curated with backgrounds of, of Scooby-Doo. Um, so there seems to be like a real interest in psychology and, and activism there. Yeah, I, I think the show was... It was conceived as a sequel to Laws of Motion. And I was thinking um, if Laws of Motion was a kind of film about the golden age of animation, which kind of takes you up to the, really to the 60s, I guess. And um, then what comes next is kind of Disneyland, which is sort of the explosion of the cartoon out into the real, into merchandise and permeating parts of reality. So I thought, oh, if I'm going to make a sort of follow up to this, maybe I should take the form of the theme park. Uh, in some way um, and then yeah throw COVID into the mix that was quite a strange time to try and open a theme park but actually it did work well for the reasons that you say I think like that um, counterintuitively it did allow social distancing in a way it, it maybe it meant you could restructure an exhibition completely say that nah, four people at a time in a gallery they have to come in a car they're basically in a bubble that means that they can just be on their own in the show keep that cart clean and send them out into this round this track and so that those mechanisms I was really I was really excited by the idea that you didn't have to do a show. Also, COVID meant you didn't know the expectations of how you used to do things were thrown out the window. And actually that was quite refreshing to me. I didn't really miss the old I it, it just sort of banal anecdote, but I think, you know, it, in a way, just structurally the way galleries are set up when I couldn't have done that show pre-COVID because you couldn't have had a private view and that's a problem because that's when most of your audience come and that's you need those audience figures for your arts council application like if you say to a gallery no that's four at a time. if you said four at a time only and it's an hour in the show before it had been very hard to kind of persuade them that that was a good idea so COVID actually was used as a sort of like uh, a way to go look let's just do things we can do things in a different way now 
And also it did really strangely double the themes of the show, which I would not have predicted. You know, it added extra significance on a lot of the films that had already been made pre pre before the, the form of the show as a theme park hadn't been decided, but the video components that you mentioned were, and they are mm. about their so sort of me as a cartoon character in completely isolated parts of the cartoon universe, walking around solitary on my own, kind of seemingly talking to myself. And in a way that had a gr- obviously a strange doubling with COVID because it was set up for my idea of what comes after the cartoon landscape, what comes after hyper capital cartoon speed which is what I was trying to describe in Laws of Motion. And I was thinking about this kind of return to a body and an isolation and a splitting away of the cartoon self. From the, and it was all quite kind of in my head as a sort of like, I didn't really know. Like, but then, of course, COVID made a lot of those things just really concrete, real. It was all of us walking around on our own in a very small area talking to ourselves. <laughs> so it was kind of strangely, it, the thing that it thought it was predicting, it was kind of the structure of feeling is an, almost an idea of what's coming next. What's the structure that's going to next emerge? Mm. And um Actually, it wasn't far off in terms of what it was trying to describe in the post-COVID experience. Mm. So there was a yeah, like a lot of strange serendipities with that show. Is that I'm sure there was for lots of people with uh, things that you've been thinking about or working on that didn't yet make sense suddenly were transformed because everything around us transformed. All me, everything we thought we knew the meaning of suddenly mm. shifted. So it was it was an interesting time to open a show. And um, so the, the Pacific references you're asking about, well, they were um, yeah, each video took kind of one text to try and interpret a part of the cartoon world, a part of this new landscape I was trying to describe. And one of them, Freud's interpretation of dreams is the best example without talking about it all in loads of depth. It's sort of, for me, it was like, these were things that had come out of my research into the cartoon landscape project, but I hadn't found, they were too chewy to flob, to, to be wedged into that, the hour long first film. So they were held back for this. And the interpretation of dreams is almost the first time someone had tried to take the space of the illogical, the absurd, esoteric space of dreams and give them a schematic, say that actually they can be understood. There's a formula. You know, they're not ununderstandable. There is something here. It's a combination of our distant pasts and the very recent events in combination based on ideas of the brain protecting us from certain things during sleep, but allowing it to emerge in covert ways. These are So for me, it was interesting because it was a bit like, ah, oh, you know, in the same way we thought you can't interpret a cartoon. It's just craziness. It's just stuff that happens. It's just, but actually, no, no, you can. You can pick it apart and mm. say, oh, there's a reason this happens. And this makes psychological sense, even though it doesn't make physical sense. So for me, it was like looking at these old, these great tomes of the 20th century that tried to teach us to understand things that we thought might be incomprehensible, be it capital as a phenomenon or, uh, yeah, dreams or, uh, mm. Are reconciling our past with our present, which is what the Wordsworth poem is kind of the introduction to, I think. Great. And with the avatar you use and the animation process, is there a specific program you use or is it more of a DIY process? That was like you have this funny thing every time like, if we go back to pyramid piece i had the same problem that you spend you know you come up with an idea and then you kind of develop it a certain amount and then it becomes apparent you have to learn a completely new skill set that you didn't have in order to go through with it so you're like so in the case of pyramid piece it was learning to knit and um it's not something i did before it was something i was like okay i'm gonna i kind of wanted to be a knitted object so i'm going to learn it same with the big large wooden boulders i came reasonably good at bending a piece of ply or cutting a piece of two by four you know so you develop this skill set and then you move on to the next project and it's kind of frustrating because you have to leave the school like start again or you want to use those skills that you're but it's harder to justify them because you haven't got the idea in Mm. the same way to lean on them um so often after i've made one i there's always often sometimes i can't help but want to use the skills i've just learned to make something else and so pyramid piece after that i made the cookamoratics which is another set of knitted rocks and after laws of motion I, i mean i really did enjoy animating it and wanted to keep using that same trick of like the joy of taking my cartoon self and putting it in a landscape and moving through a still image and making that image come alive. You know, once I, it was a sort of magic to that, that I hadn't fully fallen out of love with. So yeah, I went, those skills are by that point, it was, we'd got, I got a preset avatar really. That's kind of key, like rigged. And so you just put in the keyframes and you just do the voice and animate the voice. And it's, so it doesn't take, it became also then that's fun because it's much closer to your fingertips. Like Mm. you can, if you watch it now, it looks really rigid and there's a bit more, fluidity within that so you know you start to, you you get a little bit better at the tools you have but ultimately it's like a very simple piece of commercial software that's like mm. not it's definitely its thrill is not in the skill of doing it but only in the sort of precision of the juxtapositions of the backgrounds and things that are used to sort of mm. to uh, create the create the world's 
Great. And Shay, you had something you wanted to ask about the artistic process, didn't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, my question was, do you have any techniques that you might use for when you need to come up with that new idea and you find that you're blocked and you don't know what to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm going to need to think, it's something I need to think about because I think after the Beano show, I've got like a real cliff edge, you know, you're like propelled along and then it's going to be a hard stop. You know, you've been mm-hmm. building up and this is, this happens every few years. You have a project that so takes over your whole brain and then you've got this hard edge to it where you're like, it's done. I can't do it. And going back to the studio after that, I already know, I know enough now to know that I'm quite scared of the few weeks that follow that where I have to go back in the studio and think, okay, what now? Like, how do I build up for the next project? Sometimes you get to a beautiful fluid place where like ideas start to overlap and the next one's already happening whilst you're on one. But that, you can't, yeah, it's not always like that. Once a big project comes in, you lose, you have to give over to it. So you lose that, um, you know, you stop reading randomly to just for fun and you stop just watching random videos. So you haven't got that little pool of things to draw on. Hmm. So you, to be honest, I'm going to have to go back and kind of remanufacture that. So I would probably try and really, re- a lot of it will be about reminding myself that it's okay if I don't do anything that, that morning, yeah. like that day, be in the studio, surround myself, dip into books that I've been meaning to look at, like scroll, scroll and watch things that I know often spark something but also carve out enough time to take a few walks and try and not i mean Hmm. ultimately the frustrating thing is a lot of the time it does come when you're doing something else or not Hmm. you know or sort of think you're switched off but it's really hard to fake that so it's like very hard to then justify that i would be like i was sort of like even when i was like a teenager i was thinking like a lot of my best ideas for art came when i was supposed to be like in a i was in a math class or something and i would hate it so i would be like doodling (laughs) And then I'd be so itching to do something else. But obviously, I'm not now. I now do this all the time, so I don't have the like thing to fight against. So I maybe have to try and manufacture some of those moments where you are bored or something. That's mm-hmm. which is very rare now. You know, it's very hard to be or like frustrate or. But um, equally, I keep a lot. You know, I keep a lot of notebooks, so uh, I'm always jotting down. And I don't know what's in them, so I will probably go back, flick through them, and see if I've missed something. You know, mm-hmm. um, or like see something that was just a fleeting idea it's like oh maybe i have time now to at least to to build that up and when you're in a fluid studio it's my old studio probably had often i kept a lot of projects going on at once and i would circle around them and they'd keep i'd keep a little a few, always kind of keep a few pots on the boil like something that i just start and then leave it there and let it yeah. ignore it and so i've got enough of them around me that i would like go look at one of those and see if it's time like whether it, it's one to bring forward mm. so yeah i think surrounding myself with stuff you know works works for me surrounding myself with things that will trigger little thoughts like oh yeah i have meant to always want to do something with that or like why have i kept that on the shelf for so long you know why am i if i look around the studio here there's like what here is sort of unresolved why is it and how long has it sat there and is it time for it to move you know should i so i probably do that mm-hmm. and i have a show which we uh, on at the moment which is in worcester and uh, it's a house that's like a three-story house and i've clouded it in cardboard and it's full it's got 480 small works in it and uh, it's been incredibly badly visited i think it's like a total visitors of like 30 so in many ways it's like a complete disaster i've also scanned it so it's going to be uh, a kind of 3d scan of this house like a kind of document of all these little pieces and actually a lot of those pieces are the unfinished things they're the things that i like didn't get into a show they weren't really resolved they made me not quite sure what they're doing and the top floor of that is like there's 280 little drawings little script and drawings is even pushing it for some of them they're like um yeah like just one thing cut out and stuck on another it's like well that's not even really yours that's just a picture of a mondrian with a piece with a biffo the bear stuck on top you know it's like it's almost nothing but then what's interesting is some of them later have become something. You can see, oh, the traces of an early thought process and some have died on the spot. They just, nothing. they will never be more than they are. But, um, that, that's a good part of the, like that was to try and show that part of the process a bit. All mm. those things that you do between on the way right. through that maybe of their own don't have a huge significance, but I tried putting more together and take stock of them. So I'll be, I'll be like, yeah, looking through those, I guess, once that show comes down next week, I'll be like trying to process that a bit, that process the process, I guess, you know, think through the, um, the, all those things you do that on the way to something else and what they might mean for you and whether they are of interest to anyone else or not. Yeah, and the studio doubles up as a gallery and a music studio. I remember going to an online talk, actually, at Block336, where you mentioned 
burning everything from your last studio? Uh, yeah, I mean that is that is not everything. I burned everything that wasn't art, which right. is not quite as bold as burning all the art. But I'd accumulated a lot of stuff. So I'd been out there like ten years on this farm and I had a huge huge warehouse so because it was kind of so remote it was in like really on the edge of a village in the middle of nowhere so there was a lot of space out there and um it was an old converted pigsty really um from mm. sort of farm building because i had so much space i would i was quite accumulate you know i'd accumulate a lot of stuff a bit actually some of the stuff i've been talking about that's why i mean in a way i don't have so much of that around me but there i would be like bits of furniture that i'd found in a secondhand short stop and i used to go to a lot of jumble sales so there'd be a lot of like vases or like things that I were so I bought someone's entire collection of their matchboxes you know I just I'd be like oh that seems sometimes I just wouldn't want to like let it sit there or, or if it just looked out of place I would just buy it or and bring it to the studio thinking maybe it would be used for something and sometimes they give you the idea for a show but yeah when I, I, got, I had to move out during lockdown very suddenly due to due to what turned out to be a massive drugs operation but that's another story uh <laughs> and basically they bought the farm out to turn it into a huge cannabis factory oh, and uh wow. so i had to get out of the way because uh essentially these guys were gangsters wow. and uh, my tiny little art studio became multi-million pound <laughs> drug operation which was on the news recently but which was kind of awkward for me because i hope people didn't still think it was my studio but uh <laughs> i mean they were like a lot more profitable than art but so I had to move very quickly. And this is literally why these guys were like really quite intimidating. And I can see why now. So I had to move. I, they gave me like an ultimatum of basically just get out. out the, and so I had to move what was essentially 10 van loads of sculpture during the pandemic. So anything that didn't fit in the van that wasn't strictly an artwork just had to, we had just a bonfire raging for a week and I just threw mm. everything onto it. So I, God knows what went in there, but um, any paint, like I had to make a quick decision. If the paint was shit, it went on the fire. So I saved a lot. And a lot of the stuff that's in the Worcester show is the stuff that didn't burn. And now the next editing process is if it didn't make the Worcester show, it should probably burn now because <laughs> there's like 480 works in there. So wow. that's probably enough. I mean, I guess it was quite, you know, yeah, it's quite compulsive in how much I'm, and uh, yeah, I guess for a long time, I never knew what the material was going to be. So I'd like just grab materials and surround myself with them and uh, some would make it into the work and some wouldn't. Yeah. Ethan, straight from the vaccine centre, have you got anything you want to ask? <clears throat> yeah, um, when you had to burn a lot of your old stuff, was that was that like enjoyable to have like a release, or was it hard to sort of edit it? Like, was it sad it was, to let go, yeah. or was it enjoyable? No, you know, that's a good question too. I mean, there was a little bit of catharsis and a little bit of excitement. Like, I think we became quite wild about it. I had the old farmer who was like who'd sold up the farm to the, the gangsters. He was like helping me burn it. And he takes like a, he was like quite a cowboy. He's sort of like, he would just grab something and throw it on. And we'd be like, some of the flames would be like licking like very high into the sky. It was quite a uh, pagan, the whole thing. I don't know. We were, it was quite wild out there. There were moments standing around, like there's a couple of things that I think in hindsight shouldn't have gone. And, and there was also two skips worth of stuff on top of the fire stuff, stuff that you couldn't burn. So it was so like, also the skip was a skip was a bit more melancholy. There's definitely things in it. Like watching a skip get dragged off is different from watching it, it go into the sky and uh, yeah, at, at, at night. Yeah. I'd say mixed emotions. I think, I think, you know, it was time to move on from that place. It was quite intense. And I um, uh, had been, you know, I moved, I moved in there when I was like, a few years out of college and it was a very weird thing to do to set yourself up on like a farm in the middle of nowhere as your studio where there's no artists and the people around you openly hate art and seemingly you because you're just kind of you know it was, like, it was a real heart like UKIP heartland of like and I, but actually we got on fine you know it was one of those things when you live with people like of course you get on like fine you just in fact kind of you know we're friends but like with differences with big differences but it's kind of intense but and yeah, managed ten ten years of being there and it being this very kind of strange place to have your studio in a place where art was not a given or thought about even as art or like what you were doing was just seen as kind of mad. But people kind of enjoyed that. And then equally, I guess everyone was a bit mad. So everyone was like kind of also accept you for that in the same way. You know, it's people who are just a little bit off grid in some way. But yeah, it was time to draw a line. You know, maybe it's good to finish, you know, draw it like it was a, definitely a weird way to leave with this like van loads of stuff being dragged uh, you know fire raging and things pandemic on and knowing that yeah i mean it's psychologically the hardest bit i think was seeing the news footage nine months later and they they actually there's a video on like like look east of people like breaking down my studio oh, door no. with like oh. and a SWAT team going in and like cleaning out this like <laughs> drugs trafficking people trafficking drugs operation that like wow. that place had basically been my head for like 10 years mm. it had been my like cranium of 
it had a music space and the plaza space and my library, you know, I'd basically lived in there. So, uh, you know, watching it being turned into this was quite a sort of, that was psychologically the hardest part. So that whole experience, do you think make a project for you? Like a personal <laughs> project? Because I think that needs to be really told. Like, that's crazy. Does it happen to like a normal person? No. You know what? Uh, yeah, a few people have just pre- yeah have said this, and I presume they're like, "Well, there you go. That's like you may you got a show out of that, surely." Like, uh, but you know, I started to like work, think about it for Worcester, and I was like, maybe I could have something, and I just couldn't handle. It was too a bit raw, maybe. Like, I didn't know what I'm going to do. Like, make I was like, maybe I could buy a lot of fake cannabis plants and I could recreate <laughs> this thing. And then I was like, nah, that's just going to look really tasteless, and uh, I haven't found my um, hook there yet. There's something like deep, there's something deep in the psychology of the whole. There's like one more anecdote that like I haven't made sense of yet. That fit like so the old farmer who sold it to these guys, he had been incredibly supportive of my work, even though he thought it was crazy that contemporary art was bullshit and whatever. And he, but he had always been really nice to me and given me this cheap rent and let me stay on the farm doing making this stuff. And but then we kind of because I had to leave in a hurry and because he stayed kind of loyal to these gangsters and um, we sort of I hadn't spoken to him for a year and then in the post not in the even weirder not in the post he got a young blacksmith to come around my studio about two weeks ago with a long tailed tit nest as a present and that was just like a very like I can't work out the symbolism it's like a most perfect nest specimen I mean obviously he knows I'm interested in collecting bird's mm-hmm. nests and we used to do it together him and his friends used to help me get bird's nests from around the farm whenever they were cutting down a tree or cutting down like not taking them you know when something was being destroyed and they'd find one they'd bring it to me and he found this perfect specimen and sent it with this like strange kid courier as like a way of i don't know reconnecting some uh, through the medium of bird's nest so maybe that was like the missing part of the puzzle now i know that somehow this all revolt like uh but there's, there's some like deep insight into the psychology of bedfordshire there that i haven't like managed to unpick I've been I've been reading this book recently about uh, what artists wear, like when they're making art and just in general. And do you think your personal style or what you wear when you make art reflects the art, or, or is it just simultaneous? That's good. That's the Charlie Porter book, right? Yeah, I have yeah, yeah. I have that actually. It looks really interesting. I dipped into it, but I haven't yeah, I haven't read it yet. And uh, I'm, I think I'm a bit scared to read it. I don't. I feel like the uh, yeah. I'm not sure how the analysis would land given my like. Uh, I think. For me, like when I'm in artist mode, I do sort of, which is now so much all the time that actually then it becomes your constant thing. Like some, sometimes like having a sense of like, you know, I started wearing ties to whenever I had a private view and that was kind of, but that was actually an extension of when I started doing Laws of Motion, I made a cartoon version of myself and I made him like this kind of, kind of pseudo professorial sort of like. It actually came from a joke that people, someone said, I remember someone saying to me, I even remember I read it in a review of something I did. They like, it was a performance. They described me as like some like, uh, what's he call me? Like a sort of, looked like it was been read by like a middle school geography teacher or something. And I was like, oh. And then, and then another, and then Adrian Searle in The Guardian said this, what did he say? Oh, he's a cross between a hipster and an open university professor. And I was like, this is funny that people would comment on this. So I actually just started to play on it. I actually, I didn't, I didn't actually feel like I did anything. I never really thought about it until people started to comment on it. So I started to then build on that a bit and like kind of deliberately maybe play on it a bit and because for laws of motion i was doing these live shows where i would go in a green screen and animate my film from inside i had to look like my cartoon character so i actually then started to deliberately dress like the cartoon character so it was it slightly came more that way the cartoon character was the exaggerated version of what i was wearing and then i to exaggerate it like you're doing cartoons to make it more funny or clearer i gave him a stripy tie and whatever and then so then i had to start doing these performances doubling as it so i gradually morphed into the cartoon character and uh i think there was something about you know my central thesis i guess for laws of motion was you know if the world has become a cartoon you know uh one how do we how can we use cartoons to understand the world around us and two like what as an artist how would you what do you do in the cartoon landscape and my answer was to become a cartoon character in a way so i, I sort of definitely like that to, to exist in a cartoon world you have to act like bugs bunny so i started to kind of uh try and maybe in a performative mode like in, when i was doing performances i would do that and also when we play with the band we always used to like I think again we had a we had a review of the band early on. They said someone said we looked like an open university faculty playing <laughs> Godspeed You Black Emperor or something, and we were like, oh, that's kind of fun. Like, so we, I think again we start we started to we started to all deliberate like wear tweed jackets on stage. But I think that was literally so. I don't know. It evolves through some your own like perverse sense of humour based on your own like ridiculous idea of yourself. 
So you see with your band and your art, do you keep them separate or do you feel like one could inspire the other? I have kept them very tightly woven together, but I wonder if that was a mistake. I mean, I noticed, I mean, only in like a slightly mercantile way in that the music has always struggled a little bit to get out of uh, its kind of an art scene as a side project of my art thing when it wasn't maybe really like... I noticed some friends at the same time really kept their stuff separately. I remember like Patton and Archie Bronson Alfred, like they had, they were a good artist and like they would show with, they had galleries they were represented by. And when they did music through labels or whatever, they didn't really ever mention that they also were artists and the music did really well. And, um, I kind of did the opposite, which was like, make it nice, all this one big spiraling, like the album is basically a new exhibition. It just happens to be an album. Like it's got all the themes of my art. It's just music. And I think that was very true of the first record. And we're doing a second one, but which is now more as a band, I think more. Mm. And I think it should try and be seen as like, but I also don't know how to get that out there without using the mechanisms of art. So mm. we, we, we've always been pretty close to the arts side of it like all the art side's been more welcoming than the music side maybe so we did a project in 2014 where we did the album had come out or was coming out in 2015 i think and we um did a tour of artist run spaces so we only played places that were kind of unusual spaces run by artists we didn't play any music venues and we went around the country joined because I, I kind of often these are the places that would invite me to play or that they used to and um they would often ask me and I'd be like, it would be quite a big effort to kind of go to drive to Nottingham, set up the PA, set up mm. for one night, come home. So I would, I started just going to them, oh, could you just hold that thought? And then like, I'm going to come back to you and we're going to try and do them all in one go, like you would with a music circuit. But no, so like, it's a bit like an art music tour, but mm. using an art, art venues. And it was like logistic nightmare, but it was kind of fun. You know, we went from, and it, because for me, I think there is an interesting network you get different kind of audiences there you get people who are really invested in the place and uh you know maybe they've got studios there you know your artist collectives and uh so we and really that ended up feeling like home playing those kind of places but mm. but that's not to say that i wouldn't like the music to be able to just be enjoyed for what it is sometimes as well because like it is we don't think about art that much when we make well i do i guess i bring the art side to the table and then the rest of the band take it somewhere else so there's a collaborate i think that's the important the only important distinction is the music is more collaborative and mm. I, I enjoy that because it gives me a chance to be in the room with other people and playing with other people which i do really get a kick out of i don't think i could do music on my own anymore i started doing it i did start as a kind of solo music that was um I think the art gives me enough solitary time of my own head. Mm. So probably the the, uh, the band is like an antidote to that. It's also like when you play in front of people in a music, you know, it's a different, again, a different feeling to, it's very different from putting stuff in a room and then leaving and then people come in mm. and they see it. You know, you have this nice moment of energy of interaction mm. where you're, something's happening live, you know, you're making something in real time. And that's kind of a different, for me, it's a, just a, it's a side interest, but it's still a, something that I love doing. Yeah, and so your exhibition at Somerset House that you're curating, the B&O, The Art of Breaking Rules, which actually opens in three weeks, so it's super exciting to have you here. When this podcast airs, it will be one week, uh, 21st of October. Is the work still ongoing with that? Is that something, could you just give us some like insights into the, the, the process of curating that? Yeah, I think, yeah, happy to share something on that because it's been quite an amazing journey. It's been a huge twist i think of like i didn't expect to do such a large institutional kind of curatorial project um i've got my own little project space here in bedford that was closed for covid and then actually because the beano thing has been so huge I, and because covid it didn't seem fully done here i didn't reopen it yet so I've, I've left i like until i can do it reopen it properly i don't think i think i'm keeping it paused so my own experience my experience of curating my tiny little fun project space is is quite different from working with uh, two corporations really mm. like somerset house and the beano are both very yeah, big the big organizations and at the heart of it is something that a lot of people really love like really really love and what you forget is because you don't really talk about the beano as adults with anybody it's not something or it's not something that artists even mention even if they did read it or i don't know but then when you do have the reason to bring it up like i was talking to a, a director the other day and he directs shakespeare and various things and said i was working on this beano show he's like oh man i had a stack of beanos like <laughs> this high i loved you know and you're like it wouldn't come up normally and that and that, but then you also see how much some people have loved this thing and how important it's been in their journeys and their development so, so you have this responsibility to translate this into for the first time into its like relationship to culture and art so they came to me 
just before lockdown and it was a really lucky decision to take it because I didn't know how my year was obviously going to be mm. and it was a sort of research project to begin with they were like research it for a few months and see what you come up with and I did that and there was no guarantee they would then necessarily commission the show and then when I put my worked out how it was going to be yeah they went they everyone decided they're going to go for it and what I've done it's like three so it was threefold kind of approach one is the design of it was working with Sam Jacobs who's a sort of design architect studio and we've really worked out how to bring the Beano to life so we're scaling up shop fronts and towers and there's a full-size Lord Snooty's castle and oh. it's like you are walking through the pages of a comic so the one thing I should say the Beano's like very keen the show had to be from for kids from 8 to 80 you know like mm. it's got to be the broadest possible show and the most welcoming and the most sort of generous that it can be so it's not it's not your classic art show and my way to do that was like well who wouldn't love walking through a scaled up comic right that will appeal to you hopefully whatever age so that was my first idea was how to design that and that required reading tons of old Beano's and cutting out details and thinking what I wanted and then working out then I got Beano artists to redraw them and scale, and then so I could scale them up and then there was the arc, the historical research there's also almost a history of the comic so I've chosen about 100 original strips from the archive and they're dropped throughout into a structure that a narrative that follows the show so it talks about the artist who drew the Beano the process behind the Beano um, and so you see for the first time well not the first time there's been other presentations of the original art but it's it's going to be surprising, I think, for people to see some of the ways that these look outside of the comic. And then there was this third phase, which is the, the influence of the Beano through art and culture. And that was obviously uh, something that really hadn't been mapped, trying to find artists who were whose work was maybe informed by the sensibility of or had read it and it had filtered into their work. Or maybe had never even thought of the Beano or had seen the Beano or read it, but there was something very Beano about what they the themes of their work. So looking at how contemporary art and that a certain comic knockabout sensibility. Uh, so an example would be like Fishley and Vice. I don't presume they read the Beano, but the way things go is, you know, things knocking into, th it feels yeah. very much like a strip from Calamity James. One thing knocks something and it causes some, there's a section on cause and effect in comics. And so Fishley and Vice are in there as whose work perfectly illustrates a kind of, unusual causal chain but then there's also works by artists in there like nick park who did wallace and gromit who loved the beano and said that you know his dream job would have been to work for the beano but he ended up doing wallace and gromit and uh, setting up ardman so you've got different ways the beano has kind of filtered out something very like the Klaus soldenberg piece looks right in relation to beano and then there are something like uh, holly hendry's work who is um someone who did read the beano and you can kind of feel it in their work you know you can feel that maybe and, and someone that when i mentioned it she's like oh yes of course i love the beano i just never thought about the beano as an influence so uh same with heather phillipson so also a way of bringing the themes of the comic out so if you it would have been quite dull just to have comic strips all the way through so it's also a way of like giving this uh moments of reflection on some of the themes which are uh, one theme is Lord Snooty in the British class system. One is like Bash Street School and anti-education. One is on Minnie the Minx and Riot Girl feminism. So it's like this kind of, you, so you find a few, some of the artworks are doing a few things. They're like kind of bringing out some of these themes. So yeah, it was like a really, really, it's about a year and a half to kind of prepare, prepare the show in terms of from wow. research to design to now we, I'm actually going to be on site for the first time tomorrow, sort of uh, yeah. seeing it come to life. So pretty exciting. Oh, oh, one thing I will say, because I think it's like, for me, the most exciting part of the curator move was there's a special edition Beano that goes with the show oh, great. and there is comic which I've written the strips for and they kind of reflect on the show so the Beano characters go to visit the exhibition in the comic mm. and those comic panels are also in the show so you get this like idea of it push and pull between reality and the comic world so that for me was like one of the most exciting kind of ideas like the art that was like kind of me putting an art idea into the kind of curatorial project Excellent. Really looking forward to seeing it. So you had your work in the Tate, which is obviously a big accomplishment. And how did you celebrate? Or did you celebrate? You know what? That's a really lovely question because it is one of those moments like where you get to feel like I felt legitimate. And and that's kind of a funny thing. like Because particularly when I went to art school and that was great. And then you come out and you're not too sure what to do. And I'd moved out to bed back to Bedfordshire and so I'd set up on the farm and everyone around me had been like a bit unsure as whether it was like madness kind of what I was doing. And so having that affirmation that there were particularly something that had been made on this farm in the, like, the middle of nowhere and so many odd people had been involved in it in some way or the, uh, there was this moment of just feeling 
I didn't really sink in until the work came back. And I remember the guy dropping the work back off in the van, back into Arlsey in the farm and having the, the door up. And I remember, you know, like, it was a t- just something like, you know, that's something like no, it won't be able to be taken away. You did, and I was like, it, it suddenly overwhelmed, it only then sunk in and it like totally overwhelmed me. And, but the way we celebrated on the day was actually really wonderful because I had had, um, I felt like a lot of help from people locally who'd done different things with like some helping with the welding, helping with some of getting the knitting machines sourced, helping with this like and some of the other projects around it. So what we did was we hired a bus uh, from Bedford, like a big orange bus, and we drove all my like family and friends on this orange bus to London for the opening. And uh, it was kind of almost like an artwork. It was just like putting everybody that you felt like you owed one to, <laughs> like on a bus and driving them into town for this like. Uh, and um, Richard Wentworth is a uh, artist I admire very much who makes uh, great sculptures and a great teacher although he was never my teacher but he's been a kind of informal teacher of mine he uh, came on the bus as a kind of special guest and gave a guided tour of London so he was like the bus tour guy so we picked him up in like uh, North London and drove it. and then he got so so into it this performance of like uh, being a bus driver on the way to the opening of the Tate show that he just kept saying to the bus turn left turn right turn, and like we almost never made it to the Tate like I honestly thought we think we arrived with like 20 minutes before it closed and I was like Oh, that would have been, I mean, that was brilliant, but we, um, so that was how we marked it. Yeah. We marked it with this like, uh, enormous Barfordian bus, which is like the local bus company that's right by where I, uh, my studio was. And, uh, it was a really nice way to do it. I'm glad I did it. It seemed very sort of ridiculous at the time, but actually it was a way of having everyone travel together and be together and like have mm. a way of saying thank you to people. So yeah, it's nice to be able to recount that story. Cause it's, uh, yeah, it was really, yeah, it was yeah, real special. What was your uh, actual process from like creating the art to having it on in shows? Like, how does the um, how does it work getting it into shows? And yeah, I can work a few different ways. I mean, early on, I took a couple of gambles that I made the work, and I wasn't sure it would ever get in a show. There was a bit of an awkward like spec where you, you know. Um, and that can be hard because I know you come out of art school and then you're sort of like do you wait for someone to offer you something or do you make something and then think you offer it to someone? And like the thing that like a connected question would be like, how do you get the confidence to make something that nobody wants um, or that you don't know who? And that is hard. Like, and I often wonder how did I have that? And also mostly because I ask myself that now, because I feel like it, you can still lose it. Actually, I can, you can still lose your confidence can still really drop. I even now after like, I have to remind myself I've done, been, I just go, you've been lucky. You've done a lot. Your people have shown a lot. You might not have any more ideas. Like maybe no one will want the next one. And sometimes that's, sometimes you still have ideas that does, that nobody does quite want. I've had a few that I feel like I've been pitching over and over like, for years that I've never, maybe you just have to admit they're no good. <laughs> but sometimes the right person comes along for it. So I keep them like, but to finish a piece completely and then like pitch it is, feels like a big risk because, you know, it's a bit of investment time. But, but with the pyramid piece, it was like twofold. I did it. I actually had a commission something to do it in Holland and I showed it in Holland and, uh, it kind of just disappeared, just bombed. Like no one was like, I showed it in a space just outside Amsterdam and, uh, like no one went to see it really. There was no reviews. Like all the catalogs kind of just got sent back. Like it was a kind of, so I mean, personally, it was a great experience, and so I don't mind. But I came back with this huge work, and I was like, "Now what do I do with it?" I used to just make little pocket. This is like kind of pre-smartphones and websites, though. I didn't have a website. This, but I used to make print out. I used to go to like uh, Snappy Snaps in Bedford <laughs> and just print out photographs of everything, and I'd tape them together and make these little pocket books, and I'd carry with them with me everywhere. To be honest, so to be honest, it's just like I was quite determined, and like so, whenever I met anybody, I'd be like, "Here's my book," and like. uh and it, like, I pretty much did that with, it was like, I basically, I guess I'd done like indie music, right? So it was a bit like having a demo tape. So it just didn't yeah. seem, I just figured it was the same, right? I just have a kind of the same as having a demo tape. I would just have like photos of what I'd done and then I would just give it to people until hopefully somehow it would end up somewhere. And it was pretty much that process for a while. I'd carry the little books around and then I'd post them to people. I remember posting out the book, which had the pyramid piece in plus the other stuff I'd made to like a bunch of galleries and, um, and taking it around to anyone I knew who had anything to do with art. <laughs> like, just be like, what do I do with this? And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a miracle that the Tate, it was really odd. I was I still like, I still slightly haven't forgiven some of the people who never wrote back. You, you never do. Like, I, mean, I remember sending that to people like, and they, you know, didn't even get an acknowledgement. It's so disappointing. In fact, one of them, like my local gallery in Bedford, like never even acknowledged it. Like, didn't even like, right. You know, you just think, 
God, why not? Like I put so much love into that thing. And then I sent the same thing to the Tate and bizarrely, like it doesn't normally work that way. You don't normally post to like pocket portfolio <laughs> to the Tate, but it did for some, like it was one of those things that it just, for some reason it captured, but they didn't think I was ready. And then it, we had to sit on it for a couple of years. And then eventually it became, they felt like it was the right time and decided to get the piece out again and put it on. And now it's a combination of some things come to you. Like someone says, I've got this thing. Do you want to do something? And sometimes it is like, I've got this thing and I try and think, where could I, where could mm. I do that? Like who would, but always like, who would this make sense to, you know, who would, yeah. what, what context is so much, you know, just having a thing in isolation is never going to work. But yeah, the idea of people just sit there and that people would find you, particularly <laughs> if you're sitting in a barn in Arzi, like obviously no one would, I was kind of, kind of felt like I had to help get the stuff. <laughs> like, so yeah, often sending, sending things out. And one point I think I even made up like a little weird gift pack that had like a little sculpture plus a book and i was like sending it to people to try and like get them to sort of look at it but now it's different because you've got this is pre-instagram and it's pre squarespace and you know things where you could like i mean so there's still a charm to that isn't there that that those those are real art objects those those collection of snappy snaps as opposed to sending off an unsolicited email It's, it's a real sort of you know that people still have those and they'll be treasuring them and you know it's nice be interesting to know where they are but they um but yeah so what do you do? but the point is that that mechanism might not work now and what do you do now do you send people your you know do you i mean instagram is kind of a marvel in the sense that you can make it something that you can make something that feels like a professional practice and you can message people and they will kind of look like it's quite tempting like if students send me stuff and go would you want to look like i generally do look because like how hard is it it's like literally the ink the, the link is there and you're just like well i'll have a quick look and mm. like some stuff or something and and just and it will go in like and it will sink in on some level so th- there is a whole different playing field now for like how to uh Network. also helps you understand where to contextualize your work like you can see what curators are looking at you can see what gallerists are showing yeah. in a way that was before i would like go down the train to london i would jump the train and spend the day going around every gallery trying to get a handle on well who shows what like where would i fit like where would i you know there's no point in posting my little and those portfolios cost me like a little bit of money to make so i wasn't going to post one to like the completely wrong place so i wanted to find out where who i knew what i was into i knew kind of the sort of art that i liked and i guess i was just so i was just drawn to those places but you can do that mechanism now with the you know with yeah that cross section of building yourself a link tree and an instagram and you can like but obviously there's now tons of it so it's also like Mm. um i don't know i've always found that I, i tell you one thing I'd say, because I guess it's lots of like artists. I found that artists, when I was getting started, artists were always very generous. And like sometimes going through artists was, I went through artists more than I went through galleries. And it was artists who put me in stuff before galleries put me in stuff. Like mm. a lot of you look at my early shows, they were like curated by an artist or it was an artist run space mm-hmm. or something like so. They were like, they were, um, I always found that no one minded. St- if it was because you felt it was relevant to, in some way, not like don't just like, I don't know, call up Damien Hurst and be like, I've got this stuff or something, you know, it's like, it's not going to work. You like, you, you find someone who's to the ones who you just think, oh, that might, most people were very, would give you the time of day and like, oh yeah, I'll have a look at this thing for you. Or I'll just like, yeah, I'm happy to look. And even if they gave you just a bit of feedback or, I mean, and I, I kind of formalized that. I did a, actually, it was interesting. I did a radio show and it was really, really helpful. Hmm. I did a radio show on Resonance FM from when I was about 23 to 27 or six, maybe something mm. like that after college. I didn't do an MA and so my way doing my radio show was the equivalent of doing an MA and I'd get artists on and I'd say they would be very generous and give to, you know, sometimes I'd show them my work afterwards and um, they would just tell you, you know, give you a few little bits and be like, oh, have you seen so-and-so or have you looked at this or you might be into that or like, you know, just helped you get a sense of like where, which bits were working, what was resonating. So I think I, I came, I found that that response of like, was for me a good one it will certainly help yeah i found that the those little bits of feedback are still stay with me they're still really memorable the little throwaway comments that other eyes would make about my work and some of those eyes and you know people i liked who made stuff that you maybe never hit heard of and some were like because i had the radio show some of them were like you know i like jammed my stuff in front of john boldasari's nose and be like what do you think <laughs> <laughs> like you know so you like but what he said like was very memorable and so they help you give you like i don't know anything that helps you give a sense as an artist you need that little bit of feedback sometimes so mm-hmm. you need some like living totally in the echo chamber is really hard hard so those tiny fragments of people telling you something 
that just is you know, either encouraging or just points you and just I'm going I like that bit and you're like oh that that bit oh, okay yeah like I, I hadn't even thought that that you know artists can sometimes spot what's good about something like mm-hmm. it might be the way it's like glued together or the way that it's like you know not the thing that's the obvious thing about it and so that's always the best mechanism for feedback do you ever have to like pitch the concept of the whole um, collection of work beyond just showing some of the like images of it do you ever have to sort of give the like story behind it and sort of sell it to anyone yeah sometimes it's like the equivalent of the elevator I've, I've had to like and that can be hard like I, I think a lot of my work is about the story behind stuff too so it can be hard just sending out like how do you I've always been wrestled with do you just send a pic like from the early thing even the pyramid pieces the example again do I just send a picture of the knitted thing people think oh maybe it's a cool knitted thing but without the story it kind of doesn't have the interest so, so a lot of my early on was trying to hone the skill of like how do I and I'd practice it quite a lot. Like, how do I type this up so it makes sense? Like, how can I boil that down? And that was help. That was helpful. I think. Same with laws of motion. It's an hour long talk. How do I? What What is it about it that I can communicate quickly to give people a sense of not just a photo of some me as a cartoon character and go? They go, oh, that's cool. You're a cartoon. I'm like, no, no. This is, this is like a ten thousand word film. Like, but you're not going to watch it because you don't know if it's good yet. So how do I? So you know, you try different things. I make. I make little teaser edits you know i'll quickly cut something down to a short amount or i'll try and yeah hone a little like little paragraph about it but i'm still you're still wrestling with that all the way through occasionally i went to america and it was the only time in my life i had to do elevator pitches in a sense they're like oh this guy this person is uh they collect mike kelly and they're like that and then they potentially fund that you're you've got this taxi ride to basically sell them your show and i'm like oh my god i totally screwed it i mean i've never when put, I, I didn't did not land that one so you know you're like sometimes you have to yeah I th- it is a useful skill and art school is good for, you know some of art school is like that that thing of having to talk about your work you know uh and justify it is a useful skill i guess i thought i think at the time i hated it but in hindsight i'm glad they are sort of forced to do it and you guys doing the radio show or whatever is a good this is a good thing to do because mm. it is like ultimately also it's a gauge like artists mostly like talk, most artists I know quite like talking about art or the mm. artists or, and so I've always liked talking about it it's just different from pitching it or from like arguing about it or critting somebody but I like talking about art so that's the thing to trust so if I can find my situation where someone's like relaxed like happy just to be talking about art and often the things that I've got have come about finding someone that enjoys that too I remember the first time say I met the person from Art Angel who ended up commissioning my work with my dad which was a project that ended up being like a three-year journey a huge piece the first time we talked we pretty much talked about other artists that I liked and I talked about a project that I was someone else worked I've been really in I barely remember mentioning and then occasionally I might be like okay oh I am doing this i've been doing that but and then the rep you realize that they like talking on the same level or they start like they're enjoying you know because you want to know also do you want to work with them and do they get what you're like get how you think so uh sometimes it's not just about pitch yeah pitching your own like talking about your work but also like i remember all right this is i don't know how well this is like a, a little is like a concrete insight because i another one i screwed up a bit i think famously when hans ulrich obris comes to talk to you when you become visible enough that his curatorial headset locks on and comes in to see whether you're like ready for his whatever like brought into this other stratosphere he just asks you i think he what was it like doesn't really ask you but he asked me what is was it what book have I just read or what is my favorite what what is the one book that's most important to me and it's like I wasn't ready for that one so and it was just like I just read this really strange book by Milo and it was just like a it tripped like I don't know it was interesting though because there's a way like if you can he just wants to know about what are you interested in are you still thinking what are you do like uh, what are you you know it just trips you up a little bit rather than like asking for your pre-prepared spiel on your work that you're standing in front of he asks you this like sidebar question so um, I guess it's a good filtering mechanism because it stops you know it shows who's like who can fit who's 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 thinking and who's uh, I don't know filters out the robots I guess I just want to know um, when you moved out of the studio in the farm and you had the like small dialogue with the new tenants like what what was uh <laughs> what was were there any specifics in that do you remember like was it could you describe yeah, anything I mean, more about, about describe that? the encounter of being yeah, a yeah, meet yeah. in a, a bin in a state like uh yeah i can I, you know what i can i can describe it because i it will ne- i will never forget 
the present, like the, the time that I realized that, okay, I have to get out of here uh, and that I wasn't going to be able to negotiate this or that all the things, the charm, all the charm or money, whatever you threw at that was like, you're in the way of something you didn't know what was like, oh, that I realized how few people you meet in your life who just feel evil. Like literally mm-hmm. have this like energy presence that like when they f- do this, this is en- <laughs> yeah like energy that you're like oh man like it is horrible. But you like you can you've seen people play it on screen and you've seen it like and you don't meet them very often. Like you meet some people who are a bit like and then you lose them because they cross your paths with you know maybe in school or whatever. People who've just got like some energy that's not ever going to fit. But like to meet a grown man that's like just. <laughs> you realize oh you i you you don't take no you know people get out of your way like there is no resolution yeah. there's no resolve like you are just like ultimately about like there's some bad something really bad inside you and like when you feel that and feeling that presence was really weird mm-hmm. um because i don't yeah i then you knew and actually you knew from not like i was trying to think what were the signifiers when i was like i got home and i was like i'm pretty sure it's something pretty bad's going on but i can't i'm pretty sure it's like they've done the electric because the electrics i'm pretty sure it's going to be drugs but i don't quite know but you couldn't point at something and all i could point out was his like presence as someone who just felt like really really wrong and it's funny that someone can assume that that can have that as a mm. as an aura like when you see that aura around someone of like uh that's how you become untouchable in a way like no people there's something and he had people and then you also realize the people that you thought were like his friends were like not they were just people who stand behind him to look menacing that's also Mm. a clue if you bring people with you just to stand at the back of a room like that then you know (laughs) you know that they're probably not going to be uh yeah you guys are not going to get on uh so but also as an artist it is funny who you cross pot like maybe it's because i put my studio in a funny place but i'm sure it's the same for everybody like on your journey who you cross paths with and that one thing i will say that i learned from all that is that and it ties into like the your question about how do you get the work out there and how does the work like you know how do you pitch it or whatever is that the allies come in a really unlikely place and they're not always artists or art people you know like kerry who originally owned that farm like i don't know who was like on paper we had nothing in common i mean like really irresolvable kind of views but we something like allowed us to make this unlikely friendship and something very he ended up giving me the space to make huge amounts of experimental stuff like and people once they once they realize you're genuinely wanting to do this thing people don't are oh, just like i don't understand what you're doing but i can feel that you wanting to all right i'll help i'll help i don't even know why i'm helping but i'll help <laughs> and like uh and sometimes that actually the key allies in the journey are um really the unlikely ones they are not they are may not even have a clue what art is or why they would want to but that's also the power of art to this like even though they don't even want to admit it's art or even think about it art there's something intriguing in like the fact you're doing something different and that you're seem to be caring about this bizarre thing that they can't believe you're caring about but you know that power of care is like and so yeah the people the map of like the map of the way through is really not peppered with all the like usual landmarks for a career because people sometimes you need people to help make things or that mm. I could learn a skill set, you know, maybe people I met talked to a lot of old ladies early on and how to learn to knit and do like mm-hmm. things, you know. So the people that actually really give you some of the skill sets or the like uh, encouragement or the space or whatever, uh, uh, yeah, just keep an eye out because they're not like, they're not curators and they're not, I don't know, they're not, they don't work, they're not necessarily working hard. Okay, great. So we normally wrap up with a question, what advice would you give to the current crop of students? So the current art school students art and design students if you had to give one piece of advice well maybe i should just i mean i feel what the last thing i just said you know maybe i just reiterate look out for your unlikely allies and that they're not always the people that they think yeah Mm -hmm. people who help you are the ones you think the world because i think sometimes there's this idea of that you're like looking forward for this strategy or a kind of coherent way forward and there isn't there isn't one and right now i really don't know what those steppings they are all all the stepping stones they may still be there but they're underwater and they're murky and they're slippery and they've got a lot of weeds around i I don't know you know you go oh try and do this thing and then that might lead to you know the the idea of some kind of linear progress is right now a real a a real fallacy i think so there are some yeah just maybe embracing some of those unlikely twists and those unlike like unlikely things that allow you to actually do what it is you know to stay on track that may and sometimes that going off track you might feel like you're going off track but you're not you know that that actually that is you cannot go straight there so Mm. you know embracing some of those moments that feel like 
this is a real digression or I must be off course or I must be doing this wrong. Like, why am I, you know, for my equivalent was I ended up living at home with my mum and dad for a long time, which felt like I was so far off where I wanted to be as a mm. person because I hadn't, there was no money coming in from the arts. So they very kindly let me stay in my childhood bedroom for a, like, time, like a time to finish making some work that, you know, I felt like I was so far off the track in some points and then but without that I couldn't have made natural selection and I didn't and without that I wouldn't have reconnected with my dad and made this whole project so you never you never sometimes those points when you feel you're furthest away from where you thought you were going turns out you were actually totally on track mm. yeah okay great so Bino the art of breaking the rules opens at Somerset House on the 21st of October I'd like to say a huge thanks to Ethan Shea and of course Andy Holden for joining us today Next up is Russell Shaw Hicks. Thank you for listening. Are you interested in learning a new language? or learning aromatherapy? How about learning pediatric first aid? Morley College North Kensington offers a wide range of short courses for you to build on your career progression. To find out more, visit morleycollege.ac.uk.